Welcome to On Democracy with F.P. Wellman on Colin. You know, as I mentioned, every time we do this, I'm thrilled to partner with Colin to bring this podcast to you live and then publish on iTunes and Spotify. Colin's the easy to use, all in one platform for hosts and creators. With this app, you can stream, take questions, record, edit, share your content all in one place. Uh, if you haven't already downloaded the app and join us live to talk about our, I'd love you to do so. And join us live to talk about our democracy, how we can all help move the nation forward. But now let's uh, let's get on with the show. We've got a really good one today for the uh, for the holiday weekend. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Man, I'm so glad to be on the air with all of you guys today for this special Memorial Day weekend episode of On Democracy. I am your host, Fred Wellman, coming to you live from the Bacolic suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, in a sunny spring day. I'm especially excited to have as a guest my friend, Dr. Dan Barkoff, who's joining us from beautiful Vermont. We'll get to our conversation with him in just a minute. I'm really excited about that. And admin note, if you're new to call, and it's pretty straightforward. If you want to message us or make a comment during the program, just uh, type in your message in the space at the bottom of your screen. If you want to send an emoji, tell us how good we're doing. Send some fire emojis. I hope you will. We'll take your question. We can just go ahead and do that right there. And we'll. Tr- I think we'll have time to take your questions at the end of the show today. If you want to ask a question or make a comment, you can simply press that phone-shaped button on the right bottom of your screen, and you'll be in the queue. If we take your call, you'll need to unmute yourself on your microphone button on the bottom as well. So let's get right to it. So, man, what do we got this Sunday holiday afternoon? I actually tested. I texted my friend Dan just yesterday. I said, dude, do my show tomorrow. So... You know, I've gotten to know Dan Barkoff when you know, I first joined the Lincoln Project. He was uh, already on our Veterans Advisory Council, came with the highest of praise. Uh, he's a bit of an underachiever, which uh, he's managed to make his way in the world. When you hear his bio, you'll know I'm being sarcastic. Plus, he's a, uh, you know, damn handsome man, I got to tell you. <laughs> Dan's a graduate of the United States Military, or Naval Academy, sorry, Naval Academy class in 2001. You know, he just graduated just a few months before 9-11. He set aside to becoming a Navy SEAL, ended up serving as a platoon commander and seeing combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan as well as in Af- Africa. After eight years of service, he left the Navy in 2009 and embarked on uh, the uh, journey to become a physician. He attended the University of Vermont's post-baccalaureate medical school preparation program and was then admitted to Harvard Medical School. Uh, graduated in 2013, completed an emergency medicine residency training, residency training program at the University of New Mexico before returning to Vermont. And actually to help build a similar program for them back at UVM. In 2018, he founded Veterans for Responsible Leadership with veterans of all partisan backgrounds who believe Donald Trump should not be elected to serve as commander-in-chief. And as I mentioned, I had the very good part, fortune to partner with Dan and VFRL in our 2020 campaign efforts. And uh, we collaborate to this day. Um, so I'm excited to have Dan join the show, especially for Memorial Day. Dan, thanks for being here. I appreciate you. Fred, uh, happy to be here, man. Let's, uh, let's dive in. Yeah. So today I think we'll talk a little bit about the recent mass shootings and our experiences, combat veterans, these weapons, the midterm elections, and especially legendary Navy SEAL and bondage enthusiast Eric Greitens. <laughs> what, what VFRL is doing in all of this and what Memorial Day means to us, us old warriors. But, but first, you know, Dan, as I mentioned, I, I think I really want to offer my thoughts a little bit to everybody about these recent events and, and the political side of this thing, which is, you know, we've now had two mass shootings in just 10 days apart from 18-year-old man who easily and legally bought AR-15 assault weapons and turned them on shoppers at a grocery store, 
and frankly, most horrifyingly, on fourth graders in an elementary school. Now, we'll talk more later about the guns themselves at Dan and our experience with them, both of us, but I want to chat a little bit about the Republican response first, you know. As almost as soon as the shooting stopped in Texas, the Republican political leadership down there rolled out with effusive and unrelenting praise of the police in the town that ended up shooting the suspect in Duvalde, Texas. Now, I got to tell you, it struck me as odd from the start. You know, we would find out in the coming days that the initial stories were completely false. No police officer met him at the school and engaged him. Matter of fact, he, he wasn't even there. He, he wasn't rushed after barricading himself by a brave single Border Patrol agent who arrived on his own. None of that was true. In the end, we found out that resource officer wasn't even on campus and had to rush there when 9-11 calls came in. The on-scene commander was the local school district police chief, who notably was just elected to city council in the town. And he held the officers at bay for over 45 minutes, uh, believing that the gunman was barricaded and there was no more danger while he was actually still killing and shooting kids. And frantic children were frantically dying 911 from inside the barricaded room. Now, the Republican messaging machine has really kicked into full gear since to, to make sure we talk about everything but guns. Ted Cruz has clearly dove on uh, the word that a teacher may have left a door propped open that allowed the gunman to enter the school. So now the discussion is all about fortifying schools with single entrances and armed guards. And even though that was the policy of Uvalde, and they actually had their own police force. So then they got to try the mental health issue, right? This one fall, fails and realize that Republicans have done everything can possible to roll back mental health programs, including Governor Greg, Greg Adams himself in Texas, who cut $211 million from their mental health programs just this year. So they're not serious about that either. And then, of course, my favorite, the preachers in office, who roll out with their cries of the moral failures of our society and sin and fatherless families are the real problem. Of course, we all know that that's a safe one for them because you can't legislate any of that. It's a great way to distract us because that's always the Republican goal these days. Distract, divert, deceive from the real issue. In this case, that's deadly weapons of war and hope we move on to the next issue. Now, they're already desperately trying to get back to talking about the economy, inflation, high gas prices. But folks, we just can't let them. We can't let that divert us. It's the guns. These weapons are devastating tools of war and shouldn't be so easy to buy with no rules and no restrictions. And I tell you, our guest has carried a few over the years, as have I. So let's start off with that issue right there. So Dan, welcome again. Been looking forward to chatting you. Timing is perfect, of course. Uh, and again, I really appreciate you taking time on a Sunday. Uh, you know, you've seen these weapons. You, you what could do professionally, right? I mean, I, I, yep. I don't think people really understand just the difference in what a, a carving like that does to a, a, your targets. Do you, have, you know better than anybody else. Both, and I wanted you to talk about this because you've seen it as a Navy SEAL, but even more importantly, you're an emergency room doctor, right, Dan? I mean, you know how to, what happens, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of uh, things that, you know, coming at it from a doctor angle, you know, when we talk about these these weapons and what they're capable of, um, you know, when you go through emergency medicine, you know, residency, we're talking about, uh, you know, the velocity of the weapon, right? So, you know, the right. velocity of the bullet is the thing that kind of imparts the force. And, you know, a bullet has kind of this, this you know, when it hits, without getting too much into terminal ballistics, but, you know, when it hits something, you have what's called a permanent cavity. So, you know, with that piece of metal actually punches through. And then you've got what we call like a temporary cavity, which is basically just almost like, a, you can imagine like a shockwave Right. And into the flesh. And in these in these high velocity rifles, um, it's it's largely the temporary cavity. You know, you'll talk to trauma surgeons, someone will come in, they got shot by, you know, one of these weapons. 
And, you know, the, the hole on the outside, you know, both the entry and exit wound look fairly small. And, and the trauma surgeons, when they open them up, it's just, you know, it's like hamburger in there. Wow. So, you know, these things are designed to just impart as much force and as much velocity. And that's just if they go through something soft. I mean, if they hit a bone on the way in, um, you know, you're, you're talking about all kinds of fragmentation and, you know, both bullet fragments and, and bone fragments as well. Um, they're a completely, completely different type of weapon. Um, that, you know, initially was, uh, you know, when we switched to the 5.56 rounds uh, for the average infantryman to carry uh, back in the Vietnam days, yep. you know, the, the point was uh, to defeat Soviet body armor. So these things are laser beams. These are coming out at thousands of feet per second, whereas like a nine mil, um, you know, a pistol, something like that is coming out. I mean, they're, they're very lethal weapons in their own right, but, you know, they're, they're coming out around 900 feet per second. So right. um, it's really quite a different, it's, it's quite different what they can do um, to the human body, unfortunately. And I think that's the discussion that's missed a lot. You know, we talk a lot about how many rounds they can fire off quickly, which of course is a relevant piece. You know, we talk about magazines, but, but I thought, you know, exactly as you as a doctor, you've seen that these are very deadly weapons and the damage they do to the human body and the goal. I mean, I think reports are that the two police that did show up and were shot were actually shot through the door. They were still injured and couldn't carry on the fight through after being shot through the, the thick door at the school. I mean, these weapons are not just a hunting rifle on steroids, right? Oh, of course. I mean, the, you know, one of the first, one of my first trips in the SEAL team, we went out to this, uh, this army base in, in Arkansas and we're doing some training out there and we do our, our IADS training, uh, immediate action drills, you know, training out in the woods. And one of the first things some, some senior chief, you know, showed us new guys was, Hey, you know, see this big old tree here. And, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, an Arkansas, um, you know, oak tree that's two, three feet thick and yeah. five five six just punches right through that you know and and the point of the the point of showing us that was hey trees are not covered you know they might be concealment but trees are not covered they do not stop bullets i mean right. these things come out and they are moving right and it's just horrible and this guy had something like 1100 rounds on him when he went to that school they found strung about so he came ready for a battle um and of course he got these on you know his 18th birthday and and i've seen a lot of talk about well you know we give 18 year olds weapons you know in the army in the military in the navy you know and 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 you and i know as as service members that that's not the case at all when you and i joined you know i went to the military academy you went to the naval academy we didn't just walk in and they hand us a weapon right Exactly. I mean, you know, they, um, you know, before you come anywhere near a rifle range, whether it's, you know, at, at a service academy or, or in boot camp, I mean, you know, the first many, many weeks are, uh, you know, of boot camp are, are marching and, you know, learning to make your bed and obstacle courses and push-ups and things like that. I mean, it, it's pretty far into the train that you're going anywhere near a rifle range. And then when you get to a rifle range, you know, it's, it's pretty darn close to like one-to-one -one supervisor to, you know, a shooter. So, right. um, you know, it's, you're not in any way like handed a rifle and like go out and figure it out. I mean, it's a very, very, carefully scripted and and orchestrated with you know army or, or or navy safety regulations right and you and i had background checks before we even joined the military even to get into the military cars or even basic training for you get a clearance a security clearance that you have to have a minimum of a security clearance to even get in so you've had a background check we know about your criminal background even mental health issues uh yep. and then and then the weapons are stored where 
uh, in a, you know, in a locked armory behind, uh, you know, our armory at, uh, the field team I was at was, you know, you had a locked uh, concrete building behind, you know, with steel doors that was locked. There are two steel doors. And then once you even got into the armory, they were then further locked up in, you know, steel cages. So, and then there were sort of individual weapon cases. So if I recall correctly, you probably have to unlock four locks yep. to get to your firearm to take it to the range to shoot. Yep. On top of the electronic security system and the regular right. MP patrol. I mean, yep. you know, and you can't just sign your weapon out. Like even uh, what I find fast is you're a Navy SEAL. Everybody knows Navy SEALs are, are elite warriors. You guys are highly trained. You live with these weapons. You fire tons of them. I mean, how much how much did you guys actually shoot on a regular basis, Dan? I mean, it just didn't garrison before you deployed. Yeah, so we did a lot. We would go um, – we had kind of our, our specific shooting schools, and we went to – um, you know, one specific school down in, uh, in Mississippi and, um, we'd spend, you know, a month there. So, you know, if you're, when I was in, because of Iraq, the, the training cycles were, were pretty condensed. And so yeah, we didn't do a lot of kind of diving and, you know, traditional Navy SEAL stuff. Um, but we didn't skimp on the, on the shooting. So you'd go to this place and, you know, you'd shoot, uh, I mean, I remember my finger, like having a blister on it. You'd shoot, Jeez. you know, you'd shoot, uh, easily 500 rounds, maybe, maybe more a day, wow. you know, and then you'd do that every single day for a month. Um, and that's just with an M4. And then, you know, you, you practice with the pistol as well. Um, so it was, it was pretty, you know, pretty intense in that set. And then, uh, you know, then you, that was kind of your close in CQB work. And then you do other stuff in land warfare. And, you know, if you were ever back at Garrison, it was, um, uh, you know, at least once a week. Um, and I, I believe that now they have trailers where, you know, you, you finish PT and you go over and, you know, do your hundred rounds a day kind of thing. Wow. I mean, and that's a lot of shoot. And again, with all of that, you can't simply walk in the arms room and just take your weapon for the day <laughs> right <laughs> exactly no, no, absolutely not that's not um that's not uh you know to even even the tier one units where um you know they have a, a kill house on site um you know you got to clear it with someone you don't you know you don't just walk in and you know just keep it in your locker it's it's in the armory yep Yep. And you guys, you know, the thing about being in the military, you too, I think people forget is, you know, we do have an eye on each other. We, we know who's off. We know if guys are acting strange and all, you know, we, we, we have these systems in place. And one of the things I talk about quite a bit, I had somebody on Twitter today say, well, what's the point of these, you guys wanting mandatory training and mandatory testing? This guy already knew how to use a weapon. I said, well, you don't understand a federally licensed trainer who has to train you and test you is also going to have these conversations with you at the range, right? You yep. know, and, and, and if it's a teenager or one of our sailors saying, you know, uh, that target reminds me of my ex-girlfriend, you know, that's a sign, right? <laughs> you know, and we, we see those red flags and then, and then hopefully we have red flag laws to back it up, right? Like we do in the military. I mean, I don't know if you ever experienced it. We certainly experienced an argument where we literally took away weapons from guys. Oh, even 100%, range, right? 100%. I saw... Um, there's a guy, good, good dude, good seal, um, had a pretty big screw up downrange and accidentally, uh, had like a blue on blue with a, wow. a EOD guy. So he shot and a fellow, a fellow, a fellow American. Shot a fellow American and fortunately hit the guy in the nods, like in the, in the, in the, the night vision goggles and didn't right. injure the person. Wow. But he, um, was so distraught, you know, they, this was a, this was with a, um, 
a tier one unit and he basically like was told he was going home. They took away all his guns. They literally took away anything he could use in his room to like hang himself. You know, like wow. he was literally on like a suicide watch, um, you know, and, and then ultimately sent home and, you know, he's doing well now, but you know, my, my point is this is not like, uh, you know, it's not some Liam Neeson movie where you like open a closet and like take out, you know, whatever guns you want. And just right. Roll. Right. And I think a lot of us who have been veterans or working in the gun, I don't know, even control of the word, you know, just res- like, I, I, I love that you've got responsible leadership in your title for your organization. We used to say, you know, responsible gun ownership and responsible gun ownership meant locking them up securely. It meant ammo being separate. It meant not them not being available to children, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think when we talk to each other, so many veterans, it's funny how often I'll meet a veteran who's a, I would call them a hardcore Second Amendment guy, right? Yeah. And then you say to them, I also, there's a great story. You, you remember, you, I know you know the, the Black Rifle Coffee guys, right? Yeah. And, you know, a couple of years ago, they did one of their, their comedy videos. They used to do, they don't do as many as they used to, but they used to do as comedy videos. And in the video, they clear, the, the wife said, hey, can you clear the house for me? And, and they, they clear the house like it's an assault range. But the funny thing is, it opens with them opening a giant gun locker <laughs> where their weapons were securely stored. And I right. remember thinking to myself, if I can agree with the Black Rifle Coffee guys, whose little whole brand is the weapons that we're talking about, and they carefully lock their weapons in a huge gun locker, I think we have amongst us veterans, we can see eye to eye that we there are common sense approaches, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, you know, keeping things locked up, especially with like children in the house, I mean, it's, it's, unimaginable to me that you wouldn't, you know, in Fred, I mean, in the private, like civilian gun ownership, I mean, there, there are gun safes where like fingerprint safes where, you know, in one second, your safe pops over, you know, if if, if that's your thing, right? Like if you're worried about a home invasion or something like that, you literally put your fingerprint in only your fingerprint opens it. And then boom, out pops it, you know, a door opens up and you grab whatever you want. So, um, you know, that, that kind of stuff is like, Um, you know, you read about these people and and veterans need to, you know, we almost need to take the issue back, right? Like we need to model responsible gun ownership. Um, you know, that we need to, we need to be the people who are like, no, of course not. You can't just grab a gun from the store and roll around with it in your driver's seat. Like that's just, that's insane. Yep. Yep, that's what I think. And I agree. And it's not even partisan. I mean, I think for us, if we, we find these common sense things that are wildly popular in, in, in polling, right? Uh, you know, a, a background check makes sense. We had them to join the military. You know, a, a mandatory f- a securing your weapons makes sense, right? And I hope that, that you nailed it. I mean, that's my dream and my goal. A lot of the work I've done, I, I did work with the, the Brady uh, campaign uh, briefly uh, in my previous life yep. as a veterans advocate. And that's what we used to tell folks. Like, look, I think we see, we see see eye to eye more than we don't. Um, yep. Very, very few of us want to take away the weapons, but we do agree as veterans that we've seen the damage. We know what these weapons can do. They aren't just a hunting rifle or a sport rifle. Um, as Heather mentions in the, me- the messaging here, you know, knowing the damage these these bullets do to to bodies, they, they're not even good for hunting. You're not going to hunt a deer with an AR. It, you're no. not going to have. You're not going to be able to use the meat to be infused with lead. And you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know? Let, let me tell you a quick story. You know, to, to um, Maybe it's a little esoteric, but you know, the, so I went to uh, Marine Corps sniper school. So the C, when I got through Buds and, and SQT and, and finally got my, my Trident or whatever, I was very lucky because I was, I was an officer and I wasn't, 
um, really supposed to be going to sniper school. But this other guy uh, hooked me up with a billet to the Marine Corps Sniper School at Camp Pendleton, California. Nice. So I go to the school and, you know, Marine Corps Sniper School is like 12, 13 weeks, something like that. It took kind of a, you know, it was a, it was a long Southern California summer. Yep. And um, the, at the time, I don't know what they're doing now, but at the time, the Marine Corps was still using um, a bolt action rifle with like a five round magazine. So, you know, for, for you folks listening, if you don't know what I, what I mean is, so a bolt action is like, a, um, you know, really, it, it actually literally was a deer rifle and it had been in the Marine Corps armory forever. So they, they had this bolt action rifle where in between every shot, you had to work the bolt and chamber a new round. And then the magazine holding the bullets, there were only five of them. So you could, right. you know, you could fire a shot and then you you know chamber another round and they you know the marines who were in the school were were really um uh you know they were really proud of how proficient they were and how quick they were with a bolt action rifle and uh me and the one other seal in the course we were shooting an sr-25 now an sr-25 is essentially like a souped up tricked out version of an m4 an m16 you know it's it's a 762 uh, you know, match grade bullet and you put like, you know, it's, it's a one minute of, uh, angle gun. Um, so it's, it's much more accurate and you, you slap this really cool scope on it, uh, like a Leopold scope and, right. you know, you can, you, you're ready to go. And so just for fun, we would have, you know, the fastest Marine. And I was, I was one of the, you know, I, I passed by the skin of my teeth at Marine Corps Cypress School. But, you know, me on a gas gun as the worst student in the class versus the best, the best bolt action rifle, like sniper guy, you know, we'd have, all right, you're going to engage five targets. We're going to race to see who can get the five targets on. It was yep. not even, like, not even close. You know, we're talking, um, you know, we're talking, uh, we would clear the field of fire and, and you know, eight seconds and it would take them 24 seconds kind of thing. You know, it's like, it's so, so much different. It's so much faster um, to have a gas gun, to have a gun that automatically, you know, chambers a new round with every pull of the trigger. Yep. Yep. And that's semi-automatic. It's not automatic. I mean, right. I do see that argument a lot. I think Crenshaw was on TV today arguing, well, it's a different weapon. It's not really the same weapon because they can go automatic. And then the same comment says, of course, we never use automatic because you spray bullets everywhere. <laughs> it's, right. you, know, I've, you know, we went to three round bursts on the army M4 because it was a waste of bullets. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. It's ridiculous. The, um, you know, those, I saw that interview. I mean, Dan Crenshaw is, is you know, full of shit. Uh, this, this is absolutely a weapon of war. It is the weapon that is issued. No, it, it's not an armalite. That's just a company. That's like that, saying yeah. that's like saying, oh no, it's not toothpaste because we use Crest, not Colgate. It makes yeah. no sense whatsoever. It's the only difference between you know uh, uh, an AR-15 and um, like the M4 that I carried. So one is a, well, I always carried a a 10 inch M4, but you know, there's a 14 inch barrel M4. It's like 14 and a half inches. And you know, your, uh, your AR 15, I believe is like a 16 inch barrel. Like like an old, like an, I think it's like an old M16, right? Yeah. We used to call them, you know, muskets or. (laughs) And, but that's really the only difference. And then like, like Crenshaw said, you know, the lack of the ability to fire full auto, but then he admits like nobody shoots full auto anyway. It's a, it's a waste of ammunition. So it's, I mean, it's the same gun. Don't listen to people who tell you it's different. It is not different. It's the same damn gun. 
Yep. And that, and that brings me to the next problem. And that's, we're a great discussion. And that brings me to the next problem. We see so many of our former peers, especially Navy SEALs, you guys, the darlings, right? <laughs> Dan Crenshaw. And then we do mention Eric Greitens, you know, as, as really leveraging their, their background as Navy special operators and as, as, as soldiers in their political personality. Became a big part of the rise of Eric Greitens. And I know you spent a lot of time just, Absolutely beating the hell out of Eric Grides. It's great entertainment. If you guys don't follow uh, <laughs> Dan on Twitter, um, it's worth the, it's the worth the follow. I mean, what makes him so especially especially abhorrent to you? I know I, I know he's got a special dark place in your heart. Yeah, how much time do we have, Fred? So um, <laughs> it's yeah, a long story. <laughs> no, to, to to really explain what's wrong with Eric Grides, you got to understand a few things. So you know, the reason I didn't like Eric Grides at first. At first, back in Navy SEAL days. So Eric was uh, a Bud's class ahead of me initially. Um, And so, you know, I kind of knew him. I remember, like, kind of seeing him. You know, he was this Rhodes Scholar. He was like, you know, everyone else was 21 or, you know, 19 or whatever. And he was maybe 26, 27, something like that. So he was sort of like, you know, initially kind of just looked up to a little bit, you know. And, um but it became very quickly apparent that he wasn't really interested in, um, you know, being a seal, uh, certainly after, after nine 11 happened, um, you know, the officers back in those days were getting sent to, um, you could kind of choose, right. If you wanted to be on a seal team, like, you know, a numbered seal team, um, you know, you'd put in for like the East coast, right. And everyone wanted to be on the West coast and hang out in San Diego's great. Don't get me wrong. But if you wanted to be on the West Coast or something like that, or you could choose a, what was called a boat unit. So right. they, at the time, they were using like SEAL officers to, to manage these boat units. Now they have, um, uh, they call them like SBT, special boat team. So the guys who drive the, you know, they're very cool boats or whatever, but right. they're, it's not a SEAL mission to drive the boat. Um, right. And so Eric went to one of those. And he went there and he was on a boat team for about like nine months. Um, and then he left the SEAL teams entirely to become a White House fellow. So right. he never went to a numbered SEAL teams. He was never in a ground unit. You know, he went to PACOM um, and in PACOM, he um, you know, did, his, did, his, uh, did his deployment, came back and then left and disappeared to be a White House fellow. Wow. Um, and then he stayed in the reserves. And so you know, as he, he realized, oh, I need to, I need to pad my resume a little bit and did a, you know, he did a couple of kind of like LNO jobs, so liaison officers. So he went, uh, over to Afghanistan for, you know, a couple, like literally a couple of weeks, like, right. you know, weeks, like not, not four months, like four weeks, if that. Not a combat tour. Uh, not TDY. a combat tour. And yeah, temporary duty, right? There, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And, Touristing. Know, he probably, he probably counted like, you know, driving from Bath to Kabul, like a combat patrol. And, you know, and then, you know, he did the same thing in Iraq. And, you know, so he did that years later when he, and, you know, this whole time he's just doing his political thing. Um, You know, he came back, he founded this, this organization with another vet uh, called the mission continues and, you know, ultimately runs for office. But the guy is just like, he was a visitor to the SEAL teams. He, you know, he was on active duty for like a matter of months. And, you know, and I mean, it's, it's literally on his campaign website, right? Like he's just like Navy SEAL, Navy SEAL, Navy right. SEAL. So, I mean, the first, you know, it would be like if you went to, um, 
you know, you went to training for nursing school and then, you know, worked for two weeks as a nurse and then ran for office, right? It's like, right. it's like he wasn't really a SEAL. And so, you know, when I hit him on that, that's what, that's what I'm saying is the guy yeah. just like, he took the title and when SEALs started coming home in body bags, he was like, you know, yeah, oh yeah, I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm, I'm a combat guy, you know, all yep. this stuff. And, and he just never was. Yep. Um, and then you combine that with what he's been up to lately. And, you know, he's just a, just a real, um, atrocious human being. I mean, he, you know, he, um, it's, people have sworn under oath that, you know, he beat them, that he raped them. Um, yeah. you know, he resigned as governor. Um, you know, he, his, his wife is getting ex-wife in sworn depositions and said he hit, hit, hit their kids. You know, yep. I mean, he's a, he's the kind of guy who only cares about himself, only cares about attaining power. And, you know, his, what he's trying to do in this election is, um, his last shot at, at getting into power, right? He's never going to be the governor again. He, the Senate seat came open and he's, he's got a plan for it. I mean, I will say this about Eric. He's very, very smart and he's very calculating. He, he knows that if he can get Donald Trump's endorsement, then he will likely be the next Senator from Missouri. And, you know, he's done everything he can to do that. He goes shooting with Don Jr. He goes down to Arizona for, you know, these bullshit audits and yep. talks about it. You know, he flies out Rudy Giuliani. He he gives a job to Kimberly Guilfoyle, who I don't know what she's qualified, what kind of job she's qualified, qualified for. But like, I mean, essentially yep. nothing. You know, it's yep. just it's all for it's all for a show. It's all for one man down in Mar-a-Lago. And. Right. You know, that's that's great. And so, you know, sorry about my my rant there, but I mean, he's no. just a uniquely he's a uniquely threatening guy. He does not care. And, you know, I should say this, too. The dude was a Democrat, like a hardcore Democrat, oh, a yeah. liberal Democrat. He's Duke. He's Rhodes Scholar. He wrote books about, you know, his how he volunteered for charities. And, you know, we all need to sing Kumbaya. He went to the Democratic National Convention. He loved Obama. This kid had a picture of Bobby Kennedy on his dorm room wall at Duke. Okay. I mean, that's who he is. <laughs> yep. And, and he's, he's like, I, I can't get elected in Missouri that way. I got to try nope. something new. No, I'm, and I'm here. You know, I was uh, an original volunteer with Michigan Continues, and I was still in the Army in uh, 2007 or eight when I graduated yeah. from grad school and then went to the Pentagon. I actually kind of helped them do some Washington, D.C. stuff. He only had four people at Michigan Continues. And, you know, and I was one of the guys that got – his email when he ran for governor. Uh, and I couldn't understand how I got his email because I didn't sign up for any political emails back then. I was still in the army or had only been out. Right. And then I realized that, that were, of course, when it came out later that he'd stolen uh, the Michigan continues email list to use as a first campaign, which is illegal. Um, yep. You know, I, I always tell people, yeah, I know for a fact it did because I got the emails. And so it really, that's the thing. I think that's why he finds, I think so many of us find, look, it's no problem veterans running for office. None of us have a problem with that, right? It's, it's, it's how you use your status as a, as a badge to one, shield you from um, any kind of uh, criticism, which is infuriating, but two, when it's really just made up and, and you're using it to paint yourself in the glory that you did not earn. I, I don't, I don't like the term stolen valor very much, but he sure is borrowing the shit out of it, right? Yes, exactly. And, you, know, <laughs> you know, hey, Fred, think about, here's here's another thing. Just to give you guys a little, you know, a little insight into Greitens, there are other Navy SEALs who have you know gotten a public profile who I don't agree with, right? Like yeah. you know, uh, guys like uh, um, Rob O'Neill or Jocko right. Willink or you know some of these uh, Leif Babin, these these people who, um, in my opinion, like I think they're doing it wrong, and right. but. 
all of them hate Greitens too. Like he sucks. <laughs> he's universally loathed. Everyone knows he's a charlatan. Everyone knows he's a fraud. Um, like, you know, it's, it's amazing how everyone just, you know, with, in one interaction, you come away and you're like, what a sleazy person. Good to be united on something these days, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I pre- yeah, it's something else. I, and, and of course, I'm now here in Missouri now, so I'm, I'm yep. watching this unfold in real time. And, uh, of course, the whole the whole ticket's kind of loathsome, Bianchi, on that side right now. The uh, yes. Vicky Hartzler, you know, the uh, woman running for Senate here, she used her franken privilege as a Congress member to send out a, a flyer with her at a range with the gun, because you have to do that. And that arrived the same day as the Texas shooting. So it's really just yep. a real – there's no good guys here. You know, that's oh, – the same thing. The, the oh, day yeah. after Uvalde, he sent out video of him shooting with Don Jr., right? Yeah. Like that's, uh, you know, I mean, even Dan Crenshaw, who, let's be honest, I'm a little critical of, yes. is, it, you know, canceled his speech at the NRA and, and you know, whatnot, right? Like, th- I mean, he just is shameless. He just right. does not care. Does yeah. not care. It, 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 it actually, actually, I agree completely with you. Now, on that note, as we go into midterm, you know, VFRL, you know, you, you found a very responsible leadership, which is a terrific organization. And, and I think the motivating factor was like, like us at Lincoln Project, too. It, it was to really make sure that Donald Trump stopped being commander in chief in many ways you want. I mean, you guys are still going. Um, you're going into the mm-hmm. midterms. You know, what is VFRL up to these days? Sure. So we're, you know, we've got a couple, a couple things on. Uh, we've got some candidates we love and we've got some candidates we dislike and uh you know coming at all of them through a veterans lens you know one of my uh um one of our executive director likes to say that we are an organization of veterans but we are not a veterans organization and and mm, what we mean yeah. by that is we're we're kind of a one we're a one issue organization and that one issue is small d democracy yep so we are we care about january 6 we care about uh voter fraud we care about um you know the, or the allegations of voter fraud i should say we you know yeah. we care about getting people who above all are loyal americans who are loyal to american democracy and are willing to to sacrifice for that um, we intend to play in this cycle, play some defense for a couple of great congressional, uh, have you ever total aside here, Fred? Sure. I'm, I think that some of the NATSEC women who are in Congress are just like terrific. Right. Uh, um, you know, like, I, I don't know, you know, Abigail Spanberger. Yep. That's, I yep. mean, so Elaine Luria and Abby, yep. Abby Spanberger are the two that were most focused on, but you know, there's a cohort of these women who, um, you know, served careers in the military and then they get out and go to Congress and, and really take the job of governing seriously and really are not in it to, uh, you know, to get a, a Fox News hit. Yep. And um, so Elaine, uh, fantastic candidate. She's on her, she's running for her third term. Yep. Um, she beat Scott Taylor twice. This time around, she's probably redistricting kind of messed her up. So her, her district used to include Norfolk, which is reliably blue. And she got Norfolk got carved out. So it's a little bit of a redder district. um, And she's got two potential uh, Republican candidates that she's she's going to go against. One is um, um, her name escapes me, Kiggins, I think. And she Mm -hmm. was a former helicopter pilot. She's a little less insane than the (laughs) other guy. And then there's a a guy named Jerome Bell who. Oh, God. Yeah. The Navy, the Navy NCO. 
Navy NCO, his uh, you know claim to fame is he believes that the election workers should be executed from the last right. cycle. Right. So um, you know he he's running on a platform of of uh, if there are allegations of fraud against you, you should be executed. Um, his uh, uh, you know his his entire issue is that he's been down to Mar-a-Lago, he's kissed the ring, he's been on stage with Trump, um, and then. You know, Elaine is House Armed Services Committee. She's on the January 6th committee. She was, you know, uh, sanctioned, quote unquote, by Vladimir Putin for her support of Ukraine. I mean, she's mm-hmm. terrific. She's fantastic. She doesn't, right. you know, um, you know, she's not in it for the Fox News hits. Um, no, and not not purely a veteran. I, I like that you guys see it that way. It's yeah. it's also it's all our, it's also our best interest for national security. That's what we should be passionate about, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, and then there's a couple of folks. I mean, Greitens, of course. Um, you know, if he wins the primary, then um, we would we would get involved. Um, I I love uh, my Naval Academy classmate down in Lu- in uh, in Louisiana. Louisiana. He's got a got a, a tough road to hoe luke mixon and um and uh, there's another naval academy versus naval academy race uh <laughs> potentially um with uh, mike garcia and and quay cordy um yeah. mike garcia was a former marine corps he's a seditionist he uh signed the amicus brief he uh out in california 25 um and then the the last one i'd, I'd be remiss. Ken Harbaugh would beat me over the head if I forgot to mention that Jaden Vance <laughs> um, is uh, a person that we have a, an interest in, in speaking up about. Um, you know, yeah. resources are always challenging for us. Uh, yep. You know, we don't. Nobody. T- we have one. We have one salaried uh, employee, um, and she's uh, a 25 year old uh, out of grad school, and she's fantastic. But everyone else is volunteers, so uh, we spend all our money on on the mission. Yeah. Uh, I get it. So um, I guess the, since it is Memorial Day, I just thought I'd get into and I'll just talk about that. And then we'll take some questions. We've got people lined up for questions. I mean, Memorial Day is a special day for me. I don't know how you handle it. I, I, I do find myself in a, a pensive mood this every time. Uh, uh, luckily, my better half, Heather's gotten used to it and knows to divert my attention. Usually I hit some nature or something like that. Um, you know, how's Memorial Day? How do you approach Memorial Day? Well, Memorial Day is one of those ones that um, – you know, it's hard for, for folks who've had a traumatic experience, whether it's war, or, you know, the loss of a, you know, a loss of a spouse or, or whatever it is, you know, anniversaries are really hard, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, um, the day that something happened, uh, it's kind of on your mind. And then Memorial Day is just, you know, it's all of that, but it's a special day set aside for, for that. Um, yeah. You know, I like to reflect on, on am I living a, a you know a, a good life? Am I living a life worthy of of the gift that was given to me? Um, you know, I have friends who I think most of, often about these about two friends and and sort of for different reasons. So my my the 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 seal who was killed in Iraq who was who was closest to me was a a man named Nate Hardy. Uh, he was from New Hampshire. One of the fun things about my task unit was uh we're we're very heavy new england um so everyone was from like you know maine or new hampshire massachusetts or whatever a lot of red sox fans and um and nate ended up going to after um after i uh my platoon commander tour he went over to uh to dev group and um 
was killed assaulting a like a like a suicide uh, bomb making squad uh, site and um this this al qaeda site was uh at the time was this is before zarqawi got actually was it before yeah. zarqawi it was around when zarqawi got killed yeah. and he um uh he was killed as the number 2 man uh, in a stack doing a room entry and, uh, the Al Qaeda guys at this particular site were making suicide vests and putting them on. Um, they were kidnapping Iraqis who were, uh, you know, had down syndrome or were developmentally delayed or whatever. They were putting suicide vests on them and then they were having them walk into marketplaces and then they were blowing them up. And Nate was the two man in the stack and first guy goes in and was killed essentially immediately. And, and he's the number two man. And, you know, for, uh, for a split second, when you're doing a room clearance, you know, you, you want to get in that room as fast as you can, but there's, you know, it's, it's one person at a time. So there's a split right. second where, you know, Nate could have hesitated, you know, Nate could have, uh, ducked down and, and dragged out this, this other guy he's shooting buddy, Mike Coke. Um, and he didn't. He went into that room, you know, right on yeah. his buddy's ass, and um, he was shot kind of like in in the side uh, where your body armor doesn't cover, and, and you know, bled, bled out on the on the floor. And Nate's loss kind of hit me, you know, sort of the most. But I, I was in I was in Vermont when he was killed. I was I was out of the Navy at that point. Um, mm. And uh, the other guy I think of, I I barely knew at all, but I was there when he died and, um, a Marine Corps Lieutenant named Dan Malcolm. Um, and Dan was, I found all this out after the fact he was a, a Citadel graduate. Um, he was on his, he was a first Lieutenant. He was on his, uh, second tour of Iraq already. He had done, uh, OIF one as a second Lieutenant and, um, and we were in Fallujah and, and this was in November, 2004. And Dan and I and a couple other Marines uh, were up on a roof and um, it was an exposed position, like sort of in Fallujah. Um, and when I was up on the roof, we weren't taking any fire. Um, right. And I, I said, man, we got to, we, we got to be thoughtful about this. This is like a pretty exposed position. And he was like, I got to stay out here. I got to call, uh, you know, I got to call fire on these, on these buildings across the street. And, you know, I, w- I went back down into the building for something. And then, you know, I remember hearing, you know, people just screaming for a corpsman, corpsman, um, you know, which in the Marine Corps, in the Army, it would be a medic. Um, right. And uh, I kind of ran back up to the roof and um, all the Marines were off the roof. Uh, you know, they had all kind of run in and Dan had waited uh, to be the last. He made sure all his men got off the roof. And as he was coming in through the door um, onto the stairs, he had been, he'd been hit and he'd been shot, um, you know, kind of right above his plate in the back, you know, right. coming down off the roof. And, um, you know, we, we kind of turned him over and, and sort of worked on him. And, you know, knowing what I know now as, as a physician, I mean, he was, that was a lethal wound, but, you know, he just uh, took a minute or you know, 30 seconds or a minute and, and he just died on the stairs, you know, right in, right in front of me. And, and, mm. you know, I think of Dan, again, it's like someone who, you know, y- you look at it like his life was taken from us, right? Like it was taken, but in a, in a deeper way, you know, he, that was a gift, right? Mm. Like he gave his life, he gave his life to get his guys off the roof. 
And, you know, I, I, I hope to every day live up to that. Um, you know, so, so those are kind of two, I mean, there's, there's many others of course, but those are, those are the two that I carry with me most closely. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I lost, you know, I, I, I've told the story before I lost, you know, my, one of my air crews in desert storm. Um, we were doing a night vision mission, uh, night vision goggle mission into Iraq to recon our, our attack routes. And we, you know, it's dark. You know, how I remember dark was when every invasion yeah. we always do with the dark. And, and so we're fine. Night vision goggles this is 1990, you know, 91. This is we're even the high tech we have now. And, um, when, when we got the mission, we only were going to send two teams of Apaches and scouts and we had three scouts and, and my, my instructor pilot and, and my other pilot, Hal Reichel came and said, look, you know, this isn't, we're not going as a unit. We're not going as a platoon. So you don't have to command control a unit of the three crews, myself and my left seater, uh, Chris Anderson, specialist Anderson were the least experienced night vision goggle pilots. So they basically did an intervention saying, look, you know, this the crew selection means we go. Um, and you said this one out, Lieutenant Wellman. I was like, all right. Um, and they were right. Um, of course, and then we fly that mission that night. Um, the two teams separate go in to recon our, our routes. And, and Hal and Mike flew right into some low, we had low level fog back then. People forget yeah. in Jan, you know, in January in Southern Iraq, you get fog. Yeah. Uh, and they, they went in to, and, and of course the mission parameters normally is you climb out and fly back. But you know, with the air war going on still at that point, we were still getting, we were still getting fire from Iraq. Um, near as we can tell, they, they essentially, um, separated from the flight and, and lost, lost their bearings and flew into the ground about 90 knots. So, you know, they just didn't come back and, and it's, yeah. it's tough, right? It's a, it's a mission, you know, um, that, you know, you were supposed to fly. So it's one thing I had to carry for many years. Um, and thank God for modern, you know, mental health therapy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I, I was able to I'd come to grips with the idea that that survivor's guilt, knowing that you, you can send men. And, and that's the thing about being leaders like we were, right? You, you do send men to their death. You make decisions that you give an order that could lead to the loss. And I find myself very pensive on Memorial Day knowing that, that these men, and you say it very clearly, you, you said it perfectly, right? That he, you know, Hal and Mike did give their lives and they gave it for me. Um, they knew that of the crews, to, you know, Chris and I had the least chance of getting back safely in, in that pitch black conditions. And then, and they chose to go and, and the conditions were as bad as we, or worse than we even, even we expected. And, and they did sacrifice for their nation. They gave the ultimate measure for that. So yeah, I do often think of that last scene in Saving Private Ryan, right? When you at, when, when they, when he ages and he asks his wife, you know, you know, am I a good man? You know, did I earn yeah. this? And, um, and it's one of the, probably why it's one of the most powerful scenes for most of us who have served, especially in combat is, is that question lingers forever, I think. And, uh, I think the best we can do guys like us is keep fighting and, and doing what we can. So we'll, well, I appreciate you sharing their stories. Uh, we do have a couple of folks lined up for questions. I think we sure. have time, if that's okay with you, Dan. So, yeah, so I think our first caller, Andrew, I'm going to give you a, bring you in, Andrew, and, uh, just unmute your microphone, Andrew, and shoot away. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, we can, Andrew. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you being on. Hey, I was listening and I heard a couple of things. I heard uh, you're looking for people that are loyal to America. And you said that you were um, interested in January 6th. Um, I could, uh, so January 6th is important to you. My question is, what makes January 6th important? And what does loyalty to America look like? And then I have other questions, too, if if you want to hear him. <laughs> well, let's start with that. You know, I, I, I think, you know, Dan, you want to jump on that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So January 6th, um, by the way, you know, if you're, if you're interested in January 6th, the January 6th, uh, committee hearings coming up, um, this month and well in June, um, are going to be 
pretty pretty interesting. Um, but you know, January sixth was um, you know there's there's two parts to it that are disturbing to me, and honestly, one's like slightly more disturbing than the other. So the part that's disturbing to me about January sixth, um, you know, you've got this sort of uh, riot at the Capitol, right? And um, the, uh, you know, the riot, it does what it does, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the part that's more alarming to me about January 6th is the behind the scenes, you know, efforts of, uh, you know, the Trump administration to, to hold on to power despite the fact that they lost the election. Um, and, you know, when you lose an election and you refuse to go, um, and instead choose to uh, call into all sorts of uh, call into question, um, you know, the peaceful transition of power and, and uh, you know, the oldest democracy in, in the world. Um, I'm aware that Iceland is technically an older democracy, but, you know, the, <laughs> old, the oldest functioning democracy in, in, in the world. Um, you know, I, I think that that's that's something that's never happened before in this country. So I, I really think that, you know, that's the part that's that's more alarming to me. And, you know, have we set have we now set a precedent where, uh, you know, Republican elected officials will just say that the election is bogus and uh, we don't have to play by those rules. I mean, that's that's flirting dangerously close with, uh, you know, civil war, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And what about what do you and, and loyalty to the country? I mean, I think you and I oh, have yeah. perspective on that. Sure. I mean, loyalty to the country is, you know, to me, it's loyalty to the democracy. It's, it's loyalty to the rules of the game. Right. Like the, you know, the federal government, the state government, the local government have all done things at various points that I don't like. Um, I think that's probably true. I don't think there's every any American who could say that, you know, I, I agree with every decision that the government has made. But, you know, the government is elected by the people. And, um, you know, that's the beauty of democracy is that it's the most good for the most people. And so when we get away from that, you know, that's what I mean when I say loyal to the country. When I say loyal to the country, I mean loyal to American democracy. And for, do yeah, you, I think, go do ahead, you think, do you think that the, uh, the CIA is, uh, considered loyal to America? Do you think that after Russiagate, Intelligence Gate, JFK, <laughs> Osama bin Laden, uh, Benghazi, and all those things, would you say that the CIA is loyal to America? Would I say the CIA is loyal to America? Of course. Yeah. Yes. Even after after Russiagate and Intelligencegate and uh, all that? Uh, um, I've been overseas with the CIA. I know what they do. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. I mean, when you know when you know people who serve Andrew, when you know the people who sign up for that job, and I think what you're talking about too are the political scandals that may or may not be accurate or true. But again, it, it, an entity like that, the CIA, the DOD, the Army, the, those those institutions are, have held, and that's what's probably saved this democracy in a lot of ways. Our institutions as a whole held. Are they perfect? Have we all made mistakes? Have they made mistakes? Do individuals make mistakes? I think we could argue back and forth for days on that. But in the end, what we talk about when we talk loyalty, and then I'm going to go over to, to Amanda for a chance, is you the idea. You got to let me say one more thing. Uh, okay. 
But when we talk about the institutions holding, the institutions have to hold. Loyalty to America means that we understand that we have peaceful transitions of power, that the Constitution is the bedrock of our community, that we don't try to undermine you know, the elected officials above us. We, we, we understand and hold them to a standard and that we have justice for all. Those are just, those are things that matter in a democracy. Those are things that we fought for and continue to fight for. Go ahead, Amanda, you're next up. Go ahead, Amanda. Hey, Fred, how are you? Hey, good to hear from you again. How are you today? Oh, I'm fantastic. It's beautiful in Kansas City. Um, <laughs> Great. I'm very concerned. I, I've been seeing uh, there are several school districts in the state of Missouri who are allowing teachers to carry in the fall. My son is going into fourth grade. I, how how do I say no? How do I say absolutely no? Like, he doesn't even want to go to school in the fall. It's scary. It's a scary moment, I think, for parents and all parents. And and I think a lot of, um, you know, one things we've been saying quite a bit, and Dan, I'll go to you, is sure. You know, one things we talk about quite a bit lately in the in the Democrat. Obviously, I'm in democratic politics now as a consultant. Is you know, kitchen table issues, kitchen table issues, right? And and one thing I've been saying <clears throat> since these shootings, especially, is that the safety of our children is a kitchen table issue. A friend of mine who is a young mother said one of the most chilling things I've ever heard. She said. She's, she's young enough that she's of the, of the generation that went through, you know, the school shootings, Columbine, for example. And she said, Fred, one of the weirdest things I've experienced is that when my daughter going to kindergarten this year wanted to get shoes, she really wanted light up shoes, the shoes that, you know, light up when you run. And in the end, I decided not to get them for her because I was afraid that if she had to run away from a shooter, it would, it would light her up as a target. And that's a shocking thing to hear from a parent. Um, and so I do believe this is a kitchen table issue you're talking about now. What's the safety of my fourth grader? The idea that a teacher who may or may not be qualified in any way, shape, or form in a, in a high-stress environment has a gun. I mean, Dan, you've, you've been trained in these high-stress environments. What's your, what's your view on that? Sure. I mean, that's, that's just insane policy. That's, that's not the answer on any level. Um, you know, the... I mean, there's, you know, we started this conversation talking about safe storage of, of firearms, right? What happens if a teacher with a gun on their hip, uh, you know, tries to break up a fight on the playground? What happens if a teacher with a gun on their hip, um, you know, takes it off to go to the bathroom and leaves it on the desk? What? Okay, so then, you know, they're going to say, well, it should be locked up. Okay, so then it's locked up in their desk. Who knows the combo? Does the teacher have it memorized? Does she, you know, check every morning to, you know, to, does he, you know, take it out and do a function check every morning? Do they, you know, are they uh, getting to school earlier to, you know, to load their weapons? I mean, it's just, it's insane. The devil's in the details and the, the details are fraught with, uh, with peril. I mean, the number of people who are killed accidentally from firearms is, you know, uh, approximately like 500, 600 a year in America. Um, you know, and now you're going to introduce firearms into a school, right? I mean, all it takes is, you know, the teacher's at the blackboard and one kid's, uh, you know, mad at his buddy and he grabs, you know, grabs a gun out of a desk or, you know, whatever, you know, you can, you can go back and forth on the details of, well, they're going to be locked. Well, if they're locked, how are they going to stop a school shooter? Right. Like, yeah. I mean, it, and, get that thing out is it going to be loaded or what right. are you going to do right right i'm taking my stuff. kid out to use a fire extinguisher as a last resort right. yeah yeah off. no it's i mean i've got i've got a fourth grader you know this what happened in texas is um i'll be honest i can't even i i can bring myself to read the accounts of it i can't bring myself to listen to the audio um yeah. you know it's it's uh it's it's scary um it's it's a very 
it's a thing that's very, very unlikely to happen. But if it does happen, it's such a high impact thing, right? I mean, you know, it's, um, it's horrifying. It's just, it's so horrifying. And, and no, arming teachers is not the answer. Yeah. He, he actually told me yesterday, they don't even do tornado drills. And I thought, oh my God, yeah. like, that's a lot more common here in Missouri. Exactly. Um, exactly. I mean, scary. you know, if you wanted to, I mean, teach kids like, I mean, not even from a school shooting perspective, but like teach kids the Heimlich, right? Like, you know, like if you want to increase safety in schools by the numbers, you know, but, but having guns on a teacher, I mean, I, do you remember your high school teachers? I remember them. Our ceramics teacher went, got arrested for selling weed in the parking lot to a student. And now we're talking about giving him an AR, you know, like that's insane to me. It's a terrible policy. Yeah. Um, great. Thank you so much. It's always good to hear from you. Uh, I really appreciate it, Amanda. Um, next up, Evan, go ahead. Unmute yourself and love to hear from you. Get to unmute yourself. There you go. There, Hi, we, Evan. Go. there we go. Hey, sir. How are you? Hey. Hey, good. Uh, hey, Dan. I think I, we, we've talked a couple times on Twitter and in, uh, in DMs. I appreciate your service. Just a quick question for you. On um, what do you? I, I'd love to know your perspective on kind of the, the 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 tactical vet bro culture. You know, when you think about you know BRCC, a lot of the, you know Fieldcraft Survival, a lot of the brands and podcasts and stuff that have emerged in that ecosystem. Sure. Personally, you know, I tend to be an admirer of certainly their service and a lot of the content, but then I think, you know, that 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 content often wanders into, you know, pretty extreme stuff sometimes. You think about yeah. a lot of the stuff on like the Drinking Bros podcast where, you know, it's all fun and games and then all of a sudden someone's talking about secession. You know, and right. so I, I sort of wonder kind of what your take on the pros and the cons and certainly the financial ecosystem around that as well. Yeah. So that's a great question. I mean, Look, I don't have a problem with someone getting out of the military and then sort of like, you know, becoming a businessman or whatever. Um, I do kind of think it's problematic to just glorify the military. Um, I loved the military. I was proud of my service. I, I thought it was it was fantastic. And you know what? When I came home, I took off the uniform and I do something else now. Um, I think it's, you know, it's when people try to, when people glorify that, right. I mean, it's, it's a thin line from, um, you know, we're glorifying, uh, you know, military, you know, perhaps military values is the right term, but like, you know, there are things that Jocko says that I don't think are, uh, um, I don't think are bad at all. If Jocko wants to talk about stoicism and resiliency and, you know, he's, you know, telling a parable from his time in the SEAL teams, Sure, man. I mean, it's not my bag, but if it helps some kid who's, you know, going through a hard time and, you know, he's, he's going to get picked on or, or whatever. Um, you know, the, uh, that's, that's sort of, you know, fine with me that people want to, you know, tell stories of, of military service to help other people. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's this whole, you know, it's also like, let's just make it cool, right? Like w when the GWAT happened, we had this all volunteer military. Soft was the supported command. And, you know, you have all this, you know, all this press and, and, and people start writing books and it becomes popular and, you know, American Sniper and Lone Survivor and all this shit. And like it, it really, uh, you know, I think it's it's damaging in the long run to to kind of aspire to the trappings of military service without understanding the real the real value and the, and the real ethos behind it. 
Yeah, I, I think you, I agree in a lot of ways. I mean, good kudos for economic success and kudos for you know original ideas. They've been they've been very successful in a lot of ways. Um, there is a, a toxic side that has been exposed. Uh, if you've never seen Black Rifle, those guys are fine, you know. But there's also like the the Vets TV guy who who did the shows with some horrible bigotry and homo you know homophobia and 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 and, and touted his TV channel, if you will, as being the real the the real way veterans are. And and it's not it's not an accurate picture of all of us. It's not a picture of all the servers. You know, the, the thing is, and one of the things they teach in the military academies is in all volunteer military, the military represents society it, it serves. And, and we are. We're those guys. We're liberals. We're, we're, we're straight. We're gay. We're hard right wingers. In the end, we put the uniform on. We serve the country. And, and I, I always shudder when I hear people kind of trying to make us a block. It was an issue for us in the election, right, Dan? When we, yeah. people, people said we were crazy when we placed ads in Stars and Stripes and Army Times essentially, you know, attacking the, the existing, the serving commander-in-chief, just saying, look, these aren't the values of the commander-in-chief. You know, we can choose something better um, be, because it is about the values we share. So it's it's tough. I, I have the, you know, Fred, the best, I, best I, all. You know, I, know we're, I know we're running low we're on up time. against time, say, yep. Yeah, I'd say one more thing is, is um, you know, to me, and I, I've never had this conversation with you, Fred, but I, I suspect you feel the same. Um, to me, service is a privilege, it is a privilege to be able to uh, to take the fight to terrorists who flew jets into towers. It's a privilege to uh, rescue a you know someone kidnapped by pirates. It's a privilege to have the country lined up behind you, and uh, you know that's true of other forms of service too. You know I'm I'm an ER doctor now. It was a privilege to be on the front lines of COVID. Um, I got to do things that other people, other people who wish they could make a difference. I got to do those things yeah. and that was a privilege and I'm thankful for it. That's wonderful. That's a great way to wrap up the show. I really appreciate everybody joining us. Thanks so much, you know, questioners and, 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 you know, we won't, we won't always agree, but at least we can talk. Um, Dan, man, thank you for taking time on Memorial Day holiday for us. I know you're a busy guy working in the ER and you've got three kids and everything else going on in your life. So, uh, I really appreciate you as a, as, as a colleague and a guest and, and wish you have a, a great weekend and, and best to your family. Anytime, Fred. It was super fun. Thanks, man. Yeah. And where can we find you, Dan? If people are looking for oh, you. Oh, right. So at, where, where yeah, you hang at out. At D. Barkoff on Twitter is probably the easiest way to find me. D. Barkoff on Twitter, of course, as always me. I'm F.P. Wellman on Twitter, and I've got Blitz of pages and anything else. Uh, of course, we're right here on the call and app. If you like the show, it's published on Apple and Spotify as soon as we're done here, not long after. Hope you like the show. You can write a review or complain. It's all good. Thanks so much for joining this episode of On Democracy. We'll return again next, next week. Uh, we got lots more going on. And with that, I hope you guys have a wonderful holiday weekend. We appreciate you joining us. And that's it. Have a great day.